welcome. We're so glad that you're here tonight. It's something, uh, something about Good Friday, I'll tell you. Uh, it, it may be one of my favorite services a year. There's something about having death in sight that brings clarity. Isn't that true? Uh, some of you have been there where you've uh, gotten the diagnosis or the phone call or had a scare where uh, in that moment all of the fog lifted. And, and you got a vision for who you're intended to be and, and for your, how you're spent, supposed to send, spend your days because all of a sudden, like, your end was in sight. And this is what we do on Good Friday with the end in sight of Christ on a cross. We get a vision for who he was, who he is, and who we are to be. And I want to start off with a couple of scriptures. The first is Matthew chapter 26, 36. It says this. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. goes on in verse 45. It says, then he returned to the disciples, if you know the story, And he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? They had fallen asleep. Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So if you've ever been in a uh, 12-step program, uh, some of you are familiar with the first step in any 12-step program. Does anybody know? I know you don't want to indict yourself, but like, anybody know the first step of a 12-step program in the room? To admit, specifically, yeah, you have a problem, but specifically that you are powerless to overcome that problem. And most of the people that I know that have gone through a 12-step process, that is one of the hardest ones to begin with. It's why it's the first step. Because all of the subsequent steps depend on you admitting that you are powerless to overcome your struggle. And what I want you to know tonight, I don't know what your church background is or, or whatever your background is, but this is the beginning of you being able to step into salvation, is that you admit that you cannot help yourself. I don't know if you saw that, but that art piece, just it captured my imagination. Here's this machine trying to contain its own leaking fluid. And I just, when I saw it, I got emotional the first time I watched that video because I thought, isn't that a picture of me? Isn't that a picture of my life where I just, if I can't stop it, I try to hide it, right? If you've been there, I can't, I can't quit the behavior, I can't quit this sin, and so I just try to contain it and do some damage control to try to get through life, and what you need to know is that that's not living, and that's not the life that Christ has for you, and that's not the life that we're invited into as we walk into Easter together. So we have to start with this admitting that we can't help ourselves. And I think one of the reasons we struggle with this, um, and I've actually heard people say this before, um, I struggle with saying that because it feels like a cop-out. I mean, of course I can help myself. Of course I can do something. Like, it feels like a cop-out to, to say that you can't help yourself. But the track record is clear, right, friends? I would say that all of us in the room, in some area of our lives, we are not killing it right now. Amen, right? And if you're here and you're like, I don't think that's me, I'll just interview your wife or <laughs> your kids, right, or your husband, and they will tell me where is it in your life that you, you have a desire that you are not fulfilling. You have a commitment that you are not holding yourself to. Like you have a law that either, either God has given you or you have given yourself that you are still not upholding. And so in the end, this is where we begin is this idea that like we can't help ourselves, So I want to ask you this question. Where is the one thing that you can't seem to to overcome? Like, where is it? What's the one thing that you can't seem to to, to stop doing? And where is that in your life? And we all have something. uh, Maybe it's it's pride. Maybe it's fear that you you know you should trust God in a part of your life, but you're full of fear. Maybe it is a, a very visible thing. You have an anger problem or an addiction. It's just easy to see that this is the thing that you can't control. What is it for you? that you can't control right now. I think we all have something. For some of you, it's lust. For some of you, it's dishonesty. For some of you, it's respectability. We were actually on a trip in Wales this last year, and um, one of the people that was there, they were praying over us as as American pastors. 
And, and, and one thing he spoke that I think was like a prophetic word over us was he said, you know what's, what's wrong with so many Christians, especially American Christians, is that you're all so worried about being respectable. You're also worried about how people view you. And so when God is inviting you into his call, or even in a moment like this of worship, you're constantly thinking, how do people view me? And you're actually holding yourself back from what God's inviting you into. So the question is, whatever that thing is, how is it going with you containing your sin? How's it going? Are are you doing that well? I I think this is really where the beginning of understanding the purpose of the cross is. Uh, it starts in our lives is understanding that we cannot contain our sin. Back to verse 38, it says this, Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus says, Stay here and keep watch with me. Um, This is the moment that you say you had one job, right? Just stay awake and watch and pray. Just stay awake and watch and pray. In this moment where it says he's overcome by sorrow, it's like, overcome in a way that is killing him. I mean, this is an extreme form of sorrow that Jesus is experiencing. And, and this is happening in a place called Gethsemane. And it's, uh, I've actually had the privilege of walking through Gethsemane. I think we have a photo of it. Um, but this is an actual place where Jesus actually loved to go. He would often go to Gethsemane. It's one of his favorite spots to pray. We read about him going there in other parts of the Gospels. But the word Gethsemane... It, it, it's literally translated olive press. Olive press. And this is the moment that Jesus feels all of our sin pressing in upon him. And he's overcome with grief, and, and he's overcome with sorrow, and, and, and it's believed this is the moment that sin was transferred onto Christ. And as this begins to happen, he makes some statements. The first statement he makes is, if there's another way. The answer is, well, I mean, could there really be another way? I mean, in the past, there have been other ways. I'd imagine Jesus thinking of Abraham, right? And, and seeing the ram in the thicket, right? This, this moment that he was going to sacrifice his son and God provided another way. And yet Jesus knew, I am the ram in the thicket. I am the one that would be the sacrifice for many. Then he asked this, he said, would you let this cup pass from me? The cup he speaks of is the cup of wrath. All of God's wrath, all of God's uh, anger poured out on him in this moment. And then he gives his men this order, watch and pray, just stay awake, pray for me. And why does Jesus want them to pray? I mean, Jesus was being cared for by the Father. I mean, he has this, this, this connection with, with, with the Father himself that's it's beautiful. And, and so he has, in many ways, everything he needs. So why does he need them to pray for him? And I actually believe it was more for them than it was for him. Jesus knew that these men soon would need to pray a lot. Like, they were going to need to understand that prayer was essential to their lives. I read a quote this week that hit me that prayerlessness is the primary symptom of self-reliance. Because if we look at our lives and we see that, that we don't have a rhythm of prayer, it means that we, are, we think that we are our caretakers and that we ultimately can control our lives and, and the lives of others. And, and that's why many of us don't pray. And he knew they needed to pray. And what happens is they fall asleep, right? They fall asleep. He says this, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Where is this in your life that, man, you really want to do the right thing, but your, your flesh is weak? Like you have all the desires, and if people would sit down with you and ask you, like, how are you going to change this? You're like, I'm going to do everything to change this. Like, I want to see this different in my life. But the reality is, you can't help yourself. Your flesh is weak. My flesh is weak. And once again, to admit that you can't change something is not to to trample on the blood of Christ or to minimize what he's done for you, I think it's actually to give it value. To acknowledge that the reason Jesus came is because you can't help yourself. And I don't know how religious you are. I don't know how, how, how your life looks. Maybe some of you are like, no, Brian, I think I live pretty well. And I just promise you, in some part of your life, you cannot help yourself. And if you could, there would be no reason for the cross. There would have been no reason for Christ to come. We all have desire, but we lack the will and the, and, and the strength to pull off these things that we desire. Hebrews 12, 4 says this, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 
And, and this is really, I think, for many of us, we would say, man, we really do want to change, but we have a limit, don't we? I mean, that issue that you have, all of us want to make some changes. It's the person that's like, I want to lose 30 pounds, but I don't really want to go to the gym, right? Like, I have a limit, and my limit is running, right? I don't cross the line into running anytime. And so we know from the outside, we'd say, well, you're probably not going to accomplish that goal. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying is like, what is your limit? Like, have you actually shed your blood to overcome this thing because Christ did? He shed his, his blood, not just so that you could be free from the guilt, but so that he could set you free from the sin. And that there is still a possibility of that. And that, yes, his grace will be sufficient for your weakness. And if you take that to your deathbed and you never overcome that sin, he is enough for you, absolutely. But God is still setting people free. That is what the cross is about, is that it is a pathway to being set free. And that's what Jesus wants to do. So what can we do when we can't help ourselves? Is there anything we can begin to do to move forward in these things? I want to give you a few practical things. The first is this, that victory or failure is decided in prayer. It's decided in prayer. I was on a walk with my wife this week, and I just said, you know what, we, uh, we get in and out of a rhythm of prayer. We need to make prayer a major priority in our lives. This has to be the first thing in our days. Uh, the other day, a friend of mine was asking me, like, hey, um, what in your life has made the biggest difference in your walk with Jesus? And I would say for me, it's absolutely prayer. And it's not prayer because you're like, oh, you're, you're Pastor Brian, so of course you're going to pray. No, 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 trust me. This is as difficult for me as anybody else, but there came a point a couple of years ago where I literally couldn't get out of bed without prayer. Like I woke up with such a sense of anxiety and discouragement and, and, and even depression in my own heart that I just couldn't get out of bed. So what, what started happening in my life, is I think just God's grace on me, is I would I'd begin to kind of wake up in the morning. And you know those moments where you wake up, but like your eyes aren't open yet, but you become aware of yourself? And I started having these moments where my eyes weren't open, but I became aware of myself. And, and in those moments, I just felt like God was saying, talk to me. Before you get out of bed, just talk to me. And I found myself pouring out my heart to God and pouring out my fears to God and pouring out all that I was struggling with to God. And I, just, I promise you, it, it changed my days completely. I, I honestly believe that victory and failure in our lives is decided in prayer. And what's interesting is that a lot of people still believe in prayer. Do you know that? Like even our friends outside of the church, many people believe in prayer. A recent uh, Gallup study says this, that more Americans will pray in a given week then we'll exercise, drive a car, have sex, or go to work. Nearly 50% of the population still admits to praying daily. So think about that. In an anti-God society, in a society that says that there is no God and that things of God, especially things of Christianity, are things to be left in the past, many of them, for some reason, still pray. There is something deeply woven into the soul of every human that, that, that realizes that we are not enough. And that's a good thing. And that's going to that's gonna rub up against your pride and your self-sufficiency because you have to admit that. Again, the, the pathway to salvation is admitting that you have enough and you, or that you're not enough, that you need to be saved. And until you admit that you are not enough and need to be saved, you will not actually be able to step into the peace of Jesus. I can't believe, it's crazy, how many people pray. When we see Jesus, he was a man of prayer. He was a man of prayer. In fact, we see him praying to the point of just, he's overcome with, with, with sorrow and he's sweating blood in this moment. Like, Jesus prays hard, y'all. I mean, there's like your little kind of quiet, like, all right, God, yeah, bless my family, bless my money, bless my kids. Like, I, I, Jesus, I, I just see Jesus on his face, nose to the floor, weeping to the Father, praying with passion. What does your prayer life look like? I honestly believe that the victory of the cross was won in the garden. If you've ever asked, how did Jesus make it through the cross? How could he have put up with all of that pain and suffering? I think because it began with his moments with the Father. He had an intimate relationship with his Father, and he knew that support was always there. Like, he knew the Father in an intimate way. Do you know God that way? Do you want to? And start praying. Start making this not the, not the addition to your life, but the way that your life can be sustained is that you would be a person of prayer, right? 
Hebrews 5, 7 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions, listen to this, with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. You know, you can pray in a way that God doesn't hear your prayers. The Bible's pretty clear about that. When you have unconfessed sin, when you go to God arrogantly and you're like, well, I'm praying because I'm supposed to, but I can actually, like, I can sustain my life on my own, that's a prayer that's not heard. Even Jesus' prayers were heard by the Father because he had reverent submission to God. He knew. And and, and this, this sense of reverent submission means that, like, I know I can't sustain anything apart from you. I am nothing without you. Without a connection to the Father, I do nothing of value in this world. Jesus knew that. The question is, do you? Do I know that? Do we live like that? In verse 40, it goes on and says, Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And I love that Jesus is, uh, he's, a hu- he's human, right? Fully God, fully man. We see kind of this human response. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, right? Couldn't you keep wa- watch with me? Like for one, this is the thing I asked you to do. The answer was no, they couldn't do it. Even the most simple of things, keeping watch, being awake, they couldn't handle that. See, I think that a lot of us feel like we're a lot farther along than we are. A lot less needy than we are. And yet, you guys, listen, the most simple of things oftentimes we cannot do. And this was the case for them. Second thing I think we need to do when we realize that we can't help ourselves is that we must admit our inability to contain our sin. We have to start by going, hey, no matter how many times you go to Good Friday service or Easter service or no matter how how many times you pray or read the Bible or... Or no matter how, how much money you give away to a worthy cause, like none of that can contain your sin, right? We have to admit that. Matthew 26, 35, but Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. You see, to the very end, the disciples were like, no, 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 I'm going to be faithful. No, 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 like, no I'm going to be the one that passes the test. I think this is the story for so many of us. I mean, when you read this, when they're like, man, I would never disown you. That's called writing a check that you can't cash. If you're here today and you're like, I would never disown God, I, I just want you to know that's writing a check that you cannot cash. The good news is that Jesus only writes checks that he can cash. Amen? Right? And, the, and the, this is kind of why like, the empty tomb matters so much, right? Because we've got this moment where Jesus goes to the cross, and the cross is the moment that Jesus wrote the check, but the empty tomb is the moment we realize that the check cleared, right? Like, and some of y'all have written some checks before that have not cleared, right? Jesus never writes checks that don't clear, right? He says, I am going to die, but I'm going to be raised again. And we see that happen in the empty tomb. We see the disciples again. They don't know who they are. They don't understand how needy they are and how unable they are to even handle their own commitments, right? Where have you broken a commitment? Where is it that you can't contain yourself? Where is it that you're struggling to admit that you can't help yourself? I love in the book of Romans, Paul talks about this struggle in verse 15 of chapter 7. He says, I do not understand what I do. Anybody ever been there? Like, you ever done so? You're like, why do I do that? I am an idiot, right? Like, I've been there many times. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Story of my life. I don't understand it. But I have to admit it, that, that I, I do the things I don't want to do. A third thing I think we need to do to, to begin to move forward when we acknowledge that we can't contain our sin, that we can't help ourselves, is this, that we need to confess, repent, and take joy in the power of the cross. That it starts with confession and repentance. It starts with you tonight saying, okay, I'm going to stop being like the disciples, acting like I can contain my sin, acting like I can stop the things that that I can't stop. I'm going to quit that and just start to admit that I need God's help. I'm going to confess that. And then repentance is to actually change the way that you think about that thing. It's not simply to change your behavior, as many of you have been taught, that repentance is just to change what you do. No, repentance is to change what you think. And that's what we need is Jesus to rewire our brains when it comes to where we struggle. But in the end, we can take joy in the power of the cross because, man, when we look at the cross and we see what Christ has done for us, you've got to say, man, God must really love us. 
you've got to be, for me, I'm thrust to my knees on Good Friday in the fact that, like, man, how could he love me? Because I know my failures, and I know all of my insufficiencies, yet he died for me. How could he love me? We need to see that God really does have deep affection for us. He really does love every one of you in the room. He knows you, and he loves you, which isn't that our deepest desire. I mean, all of us want to be loved. And so many times we accept, uh, you know, another couple of friends on Facebook or another few likes on Instagram or, or, or whatever it is. Like we accept that as a form of love. But I think in our hearts we know that that's not really love because they don't know us. But when you understand that God knows you at the deepest level, he knows you in ways that you don't even know yourself, and yet he loves you, that should blow your mind. It's just unimaginable that God could love me. Pete Gregg, founder of the 24-Hour Prayer Movement, he said this. He says, your power in prayer will flow from the certainty that the one who made you likes you. He is not scowling at you. He is on your side. Unless our mission and our acts of mercy, our intercession, petition, confession, and spiritual warfare begin and end in the knowledge of the Father's love, We will act and pray out of desperation, determination, and duty instead of revelation, expectation, and joy. We've got to understand that God really does love us. And this is an invitation tonight to experience his love, to actually experience it in a real way. And that's the invitation to you. And so what we're going to do in the last few moments, we almost had a fire up here. That was great. Um, We're good. We're good. What we're going to do in the last few moments here tonight is uh, we have some communion stations set up around the room. And uh, we want you to actually come forward and receive communion. And we know Jesus, this is something that he walked through with his disciples. We call it the Last Supper. And he walked them through this moment, and still in the Last Supper, they didn't really understand what was going to happen. They still didn't really understand the depths of their sin, that they that, that Jesus couldn't come and over, overthrow the Roman Empire and, and somehow save them from the situation that they were in. He had to die for their sin. That's how drastic that it needed to be for our sin to be overcome. And so Jesus takes them through this thing and he says, I want you to continue to celebrate this. And here we are 2,000 years later still celebrating what happened in that room that day. Jesus takes some bread and he breaks it. He says, this is my, my body broken for you. So as you take the bread, I want you to remember, like, this is the broken body of Christ for you, for the places in your life where you can't help yourself. And then he says, take the cup. This is the, this is the blood of the new covenant that I'm beginning here right now, this new way of, of experiencing me and experiencing each other that I'm inviting you into. So as you drink that cup, that represents the blood of Christ spilled out for this new way that we relate to God, not through following some kind of sets of rules or rituals, but by way of the blood of Christ can we have communion with God. And so I want to encourage you, there's a couple of stations in the front of the room and in the back of the room. You can find your way to one of those in this next song. But I want you to consider, like, once again, have in your mind, where is it that you can't help yourself? And I want you to think of a moment maybe in your life where you've been in a relationship with someone. I remember when I first started dating my wife, Amanda, and um, I would start saying things to her and, and just complimenting her and just talking to her about how, be- how beautiful I thought she was. And, and maybe you've been there where you just, you're just speaking these things to somebody. It just flows so naturally from your mouth. And, and maybe they even say, stop, stop, stop. That's too much, right? But when you're doing that, when you're just like, man, I just see this beauty and I just, I have to say it. What do you say? Well, I just, I, I can't help myself. And this is the transition in this phrase from somebody who is living in sin and death apart from Jesus, who's like, I just can't help myself, to somebody who's living in the power of of Christ and overcome by his blood, is that now I can't help myself. It's, It's a phrase of worship. Like, God, I can't help myself but to tell you how good you are. I can't help myself but to tell you how how loving you are and to be overcome with, with passion for you. I can't help myself, but I love you. And so that's the invitation for you today. Would you stand up? I want to pray for us. And I want us to continue in worship and invite you to come forward and receive communion. Father, thank you so much for this moment in time that we have together. God, we're so grateful that your blood is enough for us. And God, we just look back to that moment that Jesus...
Well, welcome. We're so glad that you're here tonight. It's something, uh, something about Good Friday, I'll tell you. Uh, it, it may be one of my favorite services a year. There's something about having death in sight that brings clarity. Isn't that true? Uh, some of you have been there where you've uh, gotten the diagnosis or the phone call or had a scare where uh, in that moment, all of the fog lifted. And, and you got a vision for who you're intended to be and, and for your, how you're spent, supposed to send, spend your days because all of a sudden, like, your end was in sight. And this is what we do on Good Friday with the end in sight of Christ on a cross. We get a vision for who he was, who he is, and who we are to be. And I want to start off with a couple of scriptures. The first is Matthew chapter 26, 36. It says this. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. It goes on in verse 45. It says, then he returned to the disciples, if you know the story, And he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? They had fallen asleep. Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So if you've ever been in a uh, 12-step program, uh, some of you are familiar with the first step in any 12-step program. Does anybody know? I know you don't want to indict yourself, but like, anybody know the first step of a 12-step program in the room? To admit, specifically, yeah, you have a problem, but specifically that you are powerless to overcome that problem. And most of the people that I know that have gone through a 12-step process, that is one of the hardest ones to begin with. It's why it's the first step. Because all of the subsequent steps depend on you admitting that you are powerless to overcome your struggle. And what I want you to know tonight, I don't know what your church background is or or whatever your background is, but this is the beginning of you being able to step into salvation, is that you admit that you cannot help yourself. I don't know if you saw that, but that art piece just, it captured my imagination. Here's this machine trying to contain its own leaking fluid. And I just, when I saw it, I got emotional the first time I watched that video because I thought, isn't that a picture of me? Isn't that a picture of my life where I just, if I can't stop it, I try to hide it, right? If you've been there. I can't, I can't quit the behavior. I can't quit this sin. And so I just try to contain it and do some damage control to try to get through life. And what you need to know is that that's not living. And that's not the life that Christ has for you. And that's not the life that we're invited into as we walk into Easter together. So we have to start with this admitting that we can't help ourselves. And I think one of the reasons we struggle with this, um, and I've actually heard people say this before, um, I struggle with saying that because it feels like a cop-out. I mean, of course I can help myself. Of course I can do so. Like, it feels like a cop-out to, to say that you can't help yourself. But the track record is clear, right, friends? I would say that all of us in the room, in some area of our lives, we are not killing it right now. Amen, right? And if you're here and you're like, I don't think that's me, I'll just interview your wife or <laughs> your kids, right, or your husband, and they will tell me where is it in your life that you, you have a desire that you are not fulfilling. You have a commitment that you are not holding yourself to. Like you have a law that either, either God has given you or you have given yourself that you are still not upholding. And so in the end, this is where we begin is this idea that like we can't help ourselves, So I want to ask you this question. Where is the one thing that you can't seem to to overcome? Like, where is it? What's the one thing that you can't seem to to, to stop doing? And where is that in your life? And we all have something. uh, Maybe it's it's pride. Maybe it's fear that you you know you should trust God in a part of your life, but you're full of fear. Maybe it is a, a very visible thing. You have an anger problem or an addiction. It's just easy to see that this is the thing that you can't control. What is it for you? that you can't control right now. I think we all have something. For some of you, it's lust. For some of you, it's dishonesty. For some of you, it's respectability. We were actually on a trip in Wales this last year, and um, one of the people that was there, they were praying over us as, as American pastors. 
And, and, and one thing he spoke that I think was like a prophetic word over us was he said, you know what's, what's wrong with so many Christians, especially American Christians, is that you're also worried about being respectable. You're also worried about how people view you. And so when God is inviting you into his call, or even in a moment like this of worship, you're constantly thinking, how do people view me? And you're actually holding yourself back from what God's inviting you into. So the question is, whatever that thing is, how is it going with you containing your sin? How's it going? Are, are you doing that well? I, I think this is really where the beginning of understanding the purpose of the cross, uh, it starts in our lives, is understanding that we cannot contain our sin. Back to verse 38, it says this, Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus says, Stay here and keep watch with me. Um, this is the moment that you say you had one job, right? Just stay awake and watch and pray. Just stay awake and watch and pray. In this moment where it says he's overcome by sorrow, it's like overcome in a way that is killing him. I mean, this is an extreme form of sorrow that Jesus is experiencing. And, and this is happening in a place called Gethsemane. And it's, uh, I've actually had the privilege of walking through Gethsemane. I think we have a photo of it. Um, but this is an actual place where Jesus actually loved to go. He would often go to Gethsemane. It's one of his favorite spots to pray. We read about him going there in other parts of the Gospels. But the word Gethsemane, it, it, it's literally translated olive press. Olive press. And this is the moment that Jesus feels all of our sin pressing in upon him. And he's overcome with grief and he's overcome with sorrow, and, and it's believed this is the moment that sin was transferred onto Christ. And as this begins to happen, he makes some statements. The first statement he makes is, if there's another way. The answer is, well, I mean, could there really be another way? I mean, in the past, there have been other ways. I'd imagine Jesus thinking of Abraham, right? And seeing the ram in the thicket, right, this, this moment that he was going to sacrifice his son and God provided another way. And yet Jesus knew, I am the ram in the thicket. I am the one that would be the sacrifice for many. Then he asked this, so would you let this cup pass from me? The cup he speaks of is the cup of wrath. All of God's wrath, all of God's uh, anger poured out on him in this moment. And then he gives his men this order, watch and pray, just stay awake, pray for me. And why does Jesus want them to pray? I mean, Jesus was being cared for by the Father. I mean, he has this, this, this connection with, with, with the Father himself that's, that's beautiful. And, and so he has, in many ways, everything he needs. So why does he need them to pray for him? And I actually believe it was more for them than it was for him. Jesus knew that these men soon would need to pray a lot. Like, they were going to need to understand that prayer was essential to their lives. I read a quote this week that hit me, that prayerlessness is the primary symptom of self-reliance. Because if we look at our lives and we see that, that we don't have a rhythm of prayer, it means that we, are, we think that we are our caretakers. And that we ultimately can control our lives and, and the lives of others. And, and that's why many of us don't pray. And he knew they needed to pray and what happens is they fall asleep, right? They fall asleep. He says this, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Where is this in your life that, man, you really want to do the right thing, but your, your flesh is weak? Like you have all the desires, and if people would sit down with you and ask you, like, how are you going to change this? You're like, I'm going to do everything to change this. Like, I want to see this different in my life. But the reality is, you can't help yourself. Your flesh is weak. My flesh is weak. And once again, to admit that you can't change something is not to, to trample on the blood of Christ or to minimize what he's done for you. I think it's actually to give it value. To acknowledge that the reason Jesus came is because you can't help yourself. And I don't know how religious you are. I don't know how, how your life looks. Maybe some of you are like, no, Brian, I think I live pretty well. And I just promise you, in some part of your life, you cannot help yourself. And if you could, there would be no reason for the cross. There would have been no reason for Christ to come. We all have desire, but we lack the will and the, and, and the strength to pull off these things that we desire. Hebrews 12, 4 says this, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 
And, and this is really, I think, for many of us, we would say, man, we really do want to change, but we have a limit, don't we? I mean, that issue that you have, all of us want to make some changes. It's the person that's like, I want to lose 30 pounds, but I don't really want to go to the gym, right? Like, I have a limit, and my limit is running, right? I don't cross the line into running anytime. And so we know from the outside, we'd say, well, you're probably not going to accomplish that goal. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Is like, what is your limit? Like, have you actually shed your blood to overcome this thing because Christ did? He shed his, his blood, not just so that you could be free from the guilt, but so that he could set you free from the sin. And that there is still a possibility of that. And that, yes, his grace will be sufficient for your weakness. And if you take that to your deathbed and you never overcome that sin, he is enough for you, absolutely. But God is still setting people free. That is what the cross is about, is that it is a pathway to being set free. And that's what Jesus wants to do. So what can we do when we can't help ourselves? Is there anything we can begin to do to move forward in these things? I want to give you a few practical things. The first is this, that victory or failure is decided in prayer. It's decided in prayer. I was on a walk with my wife this week, and I just said, you know what? We, uh, we get in and out of a rhythm of prayer. We need to make prayer a major priority in our lives. This has to be the first thing in our days. Uh, the other day, a friend of mine was asking me, like, hey, um, what in your life has made the biggest difference in your walk with Jesus? And I would say for me, it's absolutely prayer. And it's not prayer because you're like, oh, you're, you're Pastor Brian, so of course you're going to pray. No, 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 trust me. This is as difficult for me as anybody else, but there came a point a couple of years ago where I literally couldn't get out of bed without prayer. Like I woke up with such a sense of anxiety and discouragement and, and, and even depression in my own heart that I just couldn't get out of bed. So what, what started happening in my life is I think just God's grace on me is I would I'd begin to kind of wake up in the morning. And you know those moments where you wake up but like your eyes aren't open yet but you become aware of yourself? And I started having these moments where my eyes weren't open but I became aware of myself. And, and in those moments I just felt like God was saying, talk to me. Before you get out of bed, just talk to me. And I found myself pouring out my heart to God and pouring out my fears to God and pouring out all that I was struggling with to God. And I, just, I promise you, it, it changed my days completely. I, I honestly believe that victory and failure in our lives is decided in prayer. And what's interesting is that a lot of people still believe in prayer. Do you know that? Like even our friends outside of the church, many people believe in prayer. A recent uh, Gallup study says this, that more Americans will pray in a given week then we'll exercise, drive a car, have sex, or go to work. Nearly 50% of the population still admits to praying daily. So think about that. In an anti-God society, in a society that says that there is no God and that things of God, especially things of Christianity, are things to be left in the past, many of them, for some reason, still pray. There is something deeply woven into the soul of every human that, that, that realizes that we are not enough. And that's a good thing. And that's going to that's gonna rub up against your pride and your self-sufficiency because you have to admit that. Again, the, the pathway to salvation is admitting that you have enough and you, or that you're not enough, that you need to be saved. And until you admit that you are not enough and need to be saved, you will not actually be able to step into the peace of Jesus. I can't believe, it's crazy, how many people pray. When we see Jesus, he was a man of prayer. He was a man of prayer. In fact, we see him praying to the point of just, he's overcome with, with, with sorrow and he's sweating blood in this moment. Like, Jesus prays hard, y'all. I mean, there's like your little kind of quiet, like, all right, God, yeah, bless my family, bless my money, bless my kids. Like, I, I, Jesus, I, I just see Jesus on his face, nose to the floor, weeping to the Father, praying with passion. What does your prayer life look like? I honestly believe that the victory of the cross was won in the garden. If you've ever asked, how did Jesus make it through the cross? How could he have put up with all of that pain and suffering? I think because it began with his moments with the Father. He had an intimate relationship with his Father, and he knew that support was always there. Like, he knew the Father in an intimate way. Do you know God that way? Do you want to? Then start praying. Start making this not the, not the addition to your life, but the way that your life can be sustained is that you would be a person of prayer, right? 
Hebrews 5, 7 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions, listen to this, with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. You know, you can pray in a way that God doesn't hear your prayers. The Bible's pretty clear about that. When you have unconfessed sin, when you go to God arrogantly and you're like, well, I'm praying because I'm supposed to, but I can actually, like, I can sustain my life on my own, that's a prayer that's not heard. Even Jesus' prayers were heard by the Father because he had reverent submission to God. He knew. And and, and this, this sense of reverent submission means that, like, I know I can't sustain anything apart from you. I am nothing without you. Without a connection to the Father, I do nothing of value in this world. Jesus knew that. The question is, do you? Do I know that? Do we live like that? In verse 40, he goes on and says, Then he returned his disciples and he found them sleeping. And I love that Jesus is, uh, he's, a hu- he's human, right? Fully God, fully man. We see kind of this human response. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, right? Couldn't you keep wa- watch with me? Like for one, this is the thing I asked you to do. The answer was no, they couldn't do it. Even the most simple of things, keeping watch, being awake, they couldn't handle that. See, I think that a lot of us feel like we're a lot farther along than we are. A lot less needy than we are. And yet, you guys, listen, the most simple of things oftentimes we cannot do. And this was the case for them. Second thing I think we need to do when we realize that we can't help ourselves is that we must admit our inability to contain our sin. We have to start by going, hey, no matter how many times you go to Good Friday service or Easter service or no matter how how many times you pray or read the Bible or... Or no matter how how much money you give away to a worthy cause, like none of that can contain your sin, right? We have to admit that. Matthew 26, 35, but Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. You see, to the very end, the disciples were like, no, 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 I'm going to be faithful. No, 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 like, no, I'm going to be the one that passes the test. I think this is the story for so many of us. I mean, when you read this, when they're like, man, I would never disown you. That's called writing a check that you can't cash. If you're here today and you're like, I would never disown God, I I just want you to know that's writing a check that you cannot cash. The good news is that Jesus only writes checks that he can cash. Amen? Right? And and this is kind of why the empty tomb matters so much, right? Because we've got this moment where Jesus goes to the cross, and the cross is the moment that Jesus wrote the check, but the empty tomb is the moment we realize that the check cleared, right? Like, it, it, and some of y'all wrote, wrote, written some checks before that have not cleared, right? Jesus never writes checks that don't clear, right? He says, I am going to die, but I'm going to be raised again. And we see that happen in the empty tomb. We see the disciples, again, they don't know who they are. They don't understand how needy they are and how unable they are to even handle their own commitments, Right? Where have you broken a commitment? Where is it that you can't contain yourself? Where is it that you're struggling to admit that you can't help yourself? I love in the book of Romans, Paul talks about this struggle in verse 15 of chapter 7. He says, I do not understand what I do. Anybody ever been there? Like, you ever done so? You're like, why do I do that? I am an idiot, right? Like, I've been there many times. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Story of my life. I don't understand it. But I have to admit it, that, that I, I do the things I don't want to do. A third thing I think we need to do to, to begin to move forward when we acknowledge that we can't contain our sin, that we can't help ourselves, is this, that we need to confess, repent, and take joy in the power of the cross. That it starts with confession and repentance. It starts with you tonight saying, okay, I'm going to stop being like the disciples, acting like I can contain my sin, acting like I can stop the things that that I can't stop. I'm going to quit that and just start to admit that I need God's help. I'm going to confess that. And then repentance is to actually change the way that you think about that thing. It's not simply to change your behavior, as many of you have been taught, that repentance is just to change what you do. No, repentance is to change what you think. And that's what we need is Jesus to rewire our brains when it comes to where we struggle. But in the end, we can take joy in the power of the cross because, man, when we look at the cross and we see what Christ has done for us, you've got to say, man, God must really love us. 
you've got to be, for me, I'm thrust to my knees on Good Friday in the fact that like, man, how could he love me? Because I know my failures and I know all of my insufficiencies, yet he died for me. How could he love me? We need to see that God really does have deep affection for us. He really does love every one of you in the room. He knows you and he loves you, which isn't that our deepest desire. I mean, all of us want to be loved. And so many times we accept, uh, you know, another couple of friends on Facebook or another few likes on Instagram or, or, or whatever it is, like we accept that as a form of love. But I think in our hearts we know that that's not really love because they don't know us. But when you understand that God knows you at the deepest level, he knows you in ways that you don't even know yourself, and yet he loves you, that should blow your mind. It's just unimaginable that God could love me. Pete Gregg, founder of the 24-hour prayer movement, he said this. He says, your power in prayer will flow from the certainty that the one who made you likes you. He is not scowling at you. He is on your side. Unless our mission and our acts of mercy, our intercession, petition, confession, and spiritual warfare begin and end in the knowledge of the Father's love, we will act and pray out of desperation, determination, and duty instead of revelation, expectation, and joy. We've got to understand that God really does love us. And this is an invitation tonight to experience his love, to actually experience it in a real way. And that's the invitation to you. And so what we're going to do in the last few moments, we almost had a fire up here. That was great. Um, We're good. We're good. What we're going to do in the last few moments here tonight is uh, we have some communion stations set up around the room. And uh, we want you to actually come forward and receive communion. And we know Jesus, this is something that he walked through with his disciples. We call it the Last Supper. And he walked them through this moment. And still in the Last Supper, they didn't really understand what was going to happen. They still didn't really understand the depths of their sin, that, they, that, that Jesus couldn't come and over, overthrow the Roman Empire and, and somehow save them from the situation that they were in. He had to die for their sin. That's how drastic that it needed to be for our sin to be overcome. And so Jesus takes them through this thing and he says, I want you to continue to celebrate this. And here we are 2,000 years later still celebrating what happened in that room that day. Jesus takes some bread and he breaks it. He says, this is my, my body broken for you. So as you take the bread, I want you to remember, like, this is the broken body of Christ for you, for the places in your life where you can't help yourself. And then he says, take the cup. This is the, this is the blood of the new covenant that I'm beginning here right now, this new way of, of experiencing me and experiencing each other that I'm inviting you into. So as you drink that cup, that represents the blood of Christ spilled out for this new way that we relate to God, not through following some kind of sets of rules or rituals, but by way of the blood of Christ can we have communion with God. And so I want to encourage you, there's a couple of stations in the front of the room and in the back of the room. You can find your way to one of those in this next song. But I want you to consider, like, once again, have in your mind, where is it that you can't help yourself? And I want you to think of a moment maybe in your life where you've been in a relationship with someone. I remember when I first started dating my wife, Amanda, and um, I would start saying things to her and, and just complimenting her and just talking to her about how, be- how beautiful I thought she was. And, and maybe you've been there where you just, you're just speaking these things to somebody. It just flows so naturally from your mouth. And, and maybe they even say, stop, stop, stop. That's too much, right? But when you're doing that, when you're just like, man, I just see this beauty and I just, I have to say it. What do you say? Well, I just, I, I can't help myself. And this is the transition in this phrase from somebody who is living in sin and death apart from Jesus, who's like, I just can't help myself, to somebody who's living in the power of of Christ and overcome by his blood, is that now I can't help myself. It's, It's a phrase of worship. Like, God, I can't help myself but to tell you how good you are. I can't help myself but to tell you how how loving you are and to be overcome with, with passion for you. I can't help myself, but I love you. And so that's the invitation for you today. Would you stand up? I want to pray for us. And I want us to continue in worship and invite you to come forward and receive communion. Father, thank you so much for this moment in time that we have together. God, we're so grateful that your blood is enough for us. And God, we just look back to that moment that Jesus was overcome 
by so much sorrow because of our sin. God, in that time and in that place, he felt all the places in the ways that we cannot help ourselves. God, thank you so much that Jesus is enough for us. Thank you so much that his blood is sufficient for our sin. And God, that we can leave this place tonight knowing that our sins are fully paid for and we can be set free. God, we love you and we receive communion tonight and we celebrate the fact that, that what was done 2,000 years ago is sufficient for us today and that we can walk in freedom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys.